Hey, all you wisdom weirdos. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There, where we discuss cautionary tales between people and nature, sometimes uh, making uh, poor decisions and sometimes just in the wrong place at the wrong time. All you need to know is that nature will always win. So we're back again with a story from Megan today. I'm super excited. Welcome back. Welcome back. At the end of this episode, we're going to be doing another Patreon shout out. We're really excited about. We got a message from Claire Nelson, who was our story for our Patreon bonus episode from uh, Joshua Tree National Park. Very cool. Yeah, she had an amazing story of survival and Mm -hmm. she's an amazing person. And I was excited that she wrote to us. And that's your first uh, subject contact right it is, is. What we're gonna call it i don't know what to call it but basically like when people survive these stories and then we yes. stalk them uh-huh until on they write Instagram. us back yeah it's exactly i feel really happy for you super exciting it was really strange when i came over to your house the other day and she, so jen is having one of her doors removed and, a new, and like moved to another place and they had already, in a concrete house in a concrete house so they yep. had already concreted up the old door area slot and I went to go walk in like usual but there was no door. It was just bricks. It was just bricks and I was like whoa this is And it had that weird brick look because they hadn't put the cement or whatever on it and it looked like the Kool-Aid guy was going to jump through like any minute. (laughs) Yes. So great. So that's happening but anyway no one cares about that. Let's get on to our science news. Let's get it. Anyway Megan thank you for sending me this and this Mm -hmm. is going to um, help you to understand why I called you wisdom weirdos because we're going to talk about wombats. And this is actually from the oatmeal. The creator of the oatmeal is Matthew Inman. And he did this amazing, I'm going to call it a spread because we're going to talk about butt cheeks uh. on a, of wombats. And each of these little tidbits of information, which I won't go through every single one of them because you should just go check this out. And it's on uh, Instagram and then, or you can just go to his site. He gives a lot of information about wombats. They're marsupials. And they can weigh up to 80 pounds. I had no idea they were that big. 36 kilograms. Very large. Their closest a relative is our koalas, also adorbs. They can weigh as much as three koalas. I held a koala. Oh, that's right. I remember seeing. Oh, I, have, I have the picture. Evidence. One of its little claws was just death gripped onto my boob. <laughs> and you see it in the picture. It's kind of like, ooh, did that hurt? I don't know. I was so happy, happy that <laughs> any amount of pain wouldn't have mattered. They dig these 100 foot long burrows with all different entrances. You know, why I mentioned this earlier is that a group of wombats is called a wisdom. And I love how he did this little cartoon and it just says they're all gathered around and it says deep thinkers only. (laughs) (laughs) And they run super fast, like 25 miles per hour or 40 kilometers per hour. Crazy fast. I mean, they're 80 pounds. They can run really fast. It's almost kind of scary. Yeah. I mean, they're cute, but coming at you, I don't know. Are they bitey? Oh, I don't know. But no, there's a lot with their butts. There's they do things. (laughs) 
first of all, they have poops that's, there's cube shaped. Little square poops. Little square poops. Do their poops look like bullion cubes? They are cube shaped. I don't know if they're bigger or the same as, you know what I mean? As a bullion cube. What happens is they can like poop out like a hundred of them a day and they actually stack up like a totem. And he says, if humans poop this often, averaging four inches per turd, we'd make 33 feet of poop per day. Can you imagine? Running around the yard, (laughs) just making a line. like a line of poo. That's roughly the height of 11.5 koalas. Then the little thing in the koala says, please stop using us as measurements. <laughs> yeah. Is it like a half koala? It's like cut in half. He drew it like the oh, top yeah. koala. Like little- <laughs> yeah, the top one. <laughs> So they, he calls them little turd totems. And it's basically they make them around and it's like either attracting a mate mm-hmm. or showing their territory and telling others to keep out. And another reason the wombat poop is cube shaped is so that they can stack it in a variety of tall, uneven surfaces such as logs or rocks without it rolling away. And he calls it butt Jenga. And I love it. <laughs> Hold on a second. Do you think the wombats like place their poos or do they just like poop it out and then it just kind of makes little stacks? Or do they like turn around and they're like, and you're going to go here and you're going to go here. Is it like Legos? I feel like a, like several would come out at one time and they mm-hmm. stack up. It just comes out that way. But yeah. Jenga. Yeah, but Jenga. <laughs> yes. Wombat butt cheeks are composed of the bone plate that have fused together to form a protective shield. And then they have a layer of fat, skin, and fur. If they're ever being attacked, mm-hmm. they'll dive down into their burrow and with their booty facing out in the picture. <laughs> you guys got to see this. I actually haven't seen it yet because I only read two. So, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I just showed her. (laughs) Um, So their butt is kind of like it's armored and doesn't have very many nerve endings. So if they're scratched or bitten, they barely feel it. I love this guy so much. It says wombat ass equals 100% secure. (laughs) While this defense in this position, the wombat can flatten its body out and leave a gap between themselves and the roof of their burrow. So that if a predator tries to poke its head into the gap, the wombat will do something instead saying it will actually slam its butt cheeks upward and crush the skull of the predator by slamming its butt which makes me think of ren and stimpy what does isn't that something like yes ren would I have feel done like i can see with ren's his butt, butt cheeks. like that yeah, yeah and it's just slamming yes that's pretty much maybe that's where they got it Um, And so anyway, that is why he has all these cool names for their butts, like surface to ass missiles, (laughs) marvelous murder cheeks, and weaponized ham slammers. (laughs) Oh, I like that one. Brutal, beautiful buttocks. So good. So anyway, what I wanted to say was very touching. As as you read down, he does put an actual picture because, you know, it's all cartoons, but he puts an actual picture of a wombat. And then he's like, okay, if you've made it this far, you care. You like wombats. And then he talks about, if you are a fan, however, there's, here's the thing, they're critically endangered. Mm. The northern hairy-nosed wombat is considered one of the rarest mammals in the world, and there are only 80 of them left. 80! 8-0! He said, if you can, please donate or follow any of the organizations. And he said, upon publishing um, this comic, he donated $10,000. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I love the oatmeal. He is amazing. He listed the Wombat Protection Society of Australia. There's links to all these, so you can, Mm. we're totally going to link to these right are you yawning oh my god every time i talk megan yawns by the way just so you know everybody out there there's the sleepy burrows wombat sanctuary the wombat awareness organization and the cedar creek wombat rescue inc and hospital that's wonderful thanks for sending that yeah that was amazing (laughs) 
I stopped reading it halfway through so that I wouldn't know what you were going to talk about. The because rest of it. we may not have an episode where we get to talk about wombats. Yeah, it's true. Oh. Because what do they ever do to anybody? Yeah. I am really excited about your story. I know you've been researching all week, <laughs> diligently. Oh, so, so much research has gone into this story. It's been <laughs> crazy. Um, obviously, I'm joking. I read a lot of stuff. And then In a short amount of time. I'm a procrastinator. I feel like I'm a procrastinator, but I think you might mm. be worse than me. People have to give me like that hard deadline. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be like, you need to freaking do this. And then I'll be like, okay. We always get stuff done on time. And you're always early for things, too. And I think that's what throws me off. Because I don't like to be late. Yeah, I'm <laughs> kind of late a lot. And I procrastinate, but you're, like, good at it. I'm <laughs> because if I don't tell you when we're going to record, you just, you're just like, oh, yeah, I haven't finished that yet. <laughs> you have to be like, okay, I'm like, I'm coming at 3 recording. o'clock, yeah. and you'll be like, I'll be done by 2.58. <laughs> I think you were on your way and I was like, I'm five minutes from being done. (laughs) Yeah, that was amazing. Anyway, I just know that you're going to talk about crocodiles. Crocodiles. Which you know I... Yeah. I mean, I... I, you love them so much. I I mean, they're interesting, but I just don't want them ever around me. So, Jen, I'm going to take you back to June 24th of this year real quick. June 24th at 7.05 Oh, that wasn't that long ago. ...a.m. here in Guam. We received a message from someone who follows us. His name is Josh Brigley. He gave us permission to give him a shout out. So this oh, nice. episode is for you, Josh Brigley. Uh, B-R-I-G-G-O-L-O Brigolio uh, is his handle on Instagram. And he Sweet. was saying he loves a podcast. Um, he's a huge biology fan. And he mentioned a story about some Japanese troops in World World War II, being forced to retreat into a crocodile-infested swamp. Wow. Yeah. I do. I remember that. But I think Mm -hmm. you wrote him back, so I didn't Mm -hmm. didn't catch the whole thing. Let me just say that we do love getting story ideas. I'll have an idea of a story I'm going to do, and somebody will send us something, and I'm like, I'm going to do this. We love it. So thank you very much, Josh. Today, I'm going to talk to you about Ramri Island which is in Burma, or the Republic of the Union of Myanmar, I think is the political name right now. rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, it's real easy to say. And I got the information I'm going to talk about today from... A bunch of different things. I got some facts from Oceana.org, NationalGeographic.com, kind of like decent YouTube video on the history of Burma, which I'm going to post, uh, FactRepublic.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, Express.co.uk. It's a travel article about the most dangerous island in the world. And then some stuff from the Avocado.org. Actually, Ooh. it's like one of the best articles that I read about this particular really so far and then of course Wikipedia of course of course (laughs) so originally I was like I'm gonna do a whole history of Burma and then I was like good lord that's super complicated it's a lot like a lot there's a lot Okay, it's a long history of colonization and oppression. I don't really want to go through all of that because then we'll never get to the story today. It'll be just a whole deal on all the different things that happened. And then in 1803. (laughs) Right. But everyone should definitely go out and read about, watch something on the history of Burma. There's this whole thing about, you know, which name you should use, Burma or Myanmar. Mm. And I mean, both of them are kind of problematic, honestly. Uh, Burma actually is the word for master in Burmese. It is 
is referring to the largest ethnic group. They're called the Bamar people. And a lot of folks feel like it's exclusionary of all the other non-Bamar minorities. Anyway, um, and then that particular name Burma was used during all of the time that they were colonized. So it's like, is it a good name or not? Mm. Uh, But then Myanmar is the result. That name came from a coup after democratic elections in the 80s. And like a bunch of people died protesting the military regime there and the military Mm. regime uh, lost. And then they were like, F that we're going to take over anyway. And then they named it the Republic of the Union of uh, Myanmar. So I remember several years back in one of the islands where we both had stayed. Yes, there were some Burmese um, refugees. Yeah, those two. There were two, right? Was it two? I feel like it was just two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and they uh, I forget how they got there. If it was on like a Chinese ship or if they just kind of figured out a way. Yeah, they came over on some ship. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And and they got stuck there for quite a while. They couldn't leave. Yeah, because they didn't have passports, right? Yeah, they didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. But they didn't want to leave. They were like, please don't send us back. <laughs> they were trying to get out of there. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit more about some of the history in World War II. Not a lot, though. I'm going to try and focus more on just the island and then the crocodiles. Let's do it. Uh, Ramri Island is in the Rakhine State, so one of the states mm-hmm. within Burma. It's separated from the mainland by a strait, which is only 150 meters or 490 feet wide in average. It's like a strait of the Bay of Bengal. Okay. Yeah, go look at a map. Okay. (laughs) I'm doing it right now. Originally, the island was a trading post. Mostly it has fishing villages spread all across it. The highest point is called Zika Taung, and it is 984 feet or 300 meters high. It is a mountain located near the western shore in the southern part of the island. Uh, They have mud volcanoes. And Ew. I was like, what the hell is a mud volcano? Oh, just it's exactly what you think it is. It's a volcano that instead of spewing lava, it spews mud and hot water. I mean, like, how hot is it? So hot that you couldn't take a bath in it? Like, what? I'm thinking, like, Yosemite kind of... Geyser action. Geysers, yeah. Oh, my God. Have you ever heard the stories of people... Oh, we should totally That's do an episode That's another that. episode. Those blow my mind. It makes me feel No really pun scared. intended. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the mud volcano would just melt your skin off. Let's Google it. I only Googled it enough, read that it was mud and water that comes out and not lava. Okay, so the temperature of any given active mud volcano generally remains fairly steady. It's much lower than typical temperatures found in other real volcanoes it's about 100 degrees celsius which is 212 degrees fahrenheit probably gonna melt your face off (laughs) (laughs) pretty sure that'll do the trick right okay the next thing you need to google is how hot will something be to melt your face off okay what temperature melts skin at what temperature does skin melt? It came up on its own. It's <laughs> obviously go. something 162 degrees. They're saying the mud volcano is 212. 200. Right. So it definitely melt your skin off. Definitely. It's like the same temperature as pizza when you get the pizza out of the oven. If we took a mud bath, all that's going to be left are bones. Yeah. Beautiful. Easy peasy. This is taking guys, a real weird turn. <laughs> this is how Jen is going to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, come on, Megan, let's go. It's going to be great. I, would be like, I told that story about mud volcanoes, Jen. I already know. We already talked about this in the podcast. <laughs> The population of the island is about 400,000 people. There are oil reserves, and those oil reserves are like the traditional, other than fishing, it's the other way that people are supported uh, as far as local economy goes. Ramri has now this multinational pipeline that carries oil through it, and actually that development of the pipeline triggered some protests from the islanders because they were not consulted by the Chinese or the Burmese governments, and they're not guaranteed any profit from the construction of 
come on sounds about right also the the chinese and burmese governments have declared an area called the special economic zone that's in quotes and it is uh was told to to local people that it was going to secure employment for like the building of that railway and the oil line and all that stuff now they feel like it's going to be destroying all the natural environments as they make these like construction areas so like that's not any better they're just fragmenting the crap out of everything. Uh, something that the island is known for, mm-hmm. or has been known for, mm-hmm. is the large population of saltwater crocodiles. Nope, 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 nope. Living in the mangrove swamps. So let's talk about saltwater crocodiles. Saltwater crocodiles, Crocodilus porosus, okay, are the largest crocodile species in the world and the largest living reptile <gasps> in the world. No, that's why. Yes, yes, yes. We will never get a mud bath. I'm sorry. Male saltwater crocodiles have been recorded at lengths of 23 feet or 7 meters and weights of 2,205 pounds. Wait a second. That's 1,000 kilograms. They're 2,000 pounds? 2,000 pounds. Oh, my God. So that's like the largest. Females are much smaller, growing to be about 10 feet or 3 meters long and weighing 330 pounds. I don't feel any better. Adult saltwater crocodiles have 66 teeth. Wait, before you go any further, can I just tell you that Mm -hmm. it's how I feel about a lot of these cartoon movies I watch with my kids. Mm -hmm. Did you watch, uh, what's the one with Merida? Um, Brave. The mom and the dad. I know. He's like this giant block, like this humongous <laughs> and person. And she's like wayfish. And she's like this tiny little thing. That's when I'm right. like, mm, it's just weird. I it's, mean, I know well, it's a cartoon, it, but. But is it creating body dysmorphia in all of our children? Probably. Maybe they pulled it from real world saltwater crocodiles. It is weird. Adult saltwater crocodiles have 66 teeth. That's a lot of teethies uh, on average. Okay. And they have the greatest bite pressure of any animal in the world, period. That is crazy. I did not know that. Also, I watched this video. I think it was on the National Geographic Facts About Saltwater Crocodiles page. And there is this study. There are these scientists. They went to Africa and they were doing some uh, videos of salt saltwater crocodile bites. But they were like mounting the cameras on these like things that the crocodiles would come up and bite into. So you could like see it and they just pop out of nowhere. It's so fast. I mean, they're huge, but they're like, boop, and they just like grab it with their giant mouths. Mm -hmm. And you can see like all you really see, you can kind of tell that the camera is being twirled around because they do the thing that crocodiles do where they bite and then just twirl a bunch to like rip up stuff. Anyway, they were actually able to retrieve all 10 of their cameras. Which I thought was amazing. Yeah, because the crocodile's like, pit. That's disgusting. Saltwater crocodiles are most commonly found in coastal waters or rivers where they can swim between freshwater and brackish water. Hence their name, because they're able to be in saltwater. Right, and it just means that they're everywhere. (laughs) They have a lot of uh, access. It does kind of remind me of your shark story. Right. That one kind of, was it bull sharks or something? Bull sharks. yeah. Yeah, they can be in brackish water. Saltwater crocodiles can live more than 70 years. Jesus. So they can live a long ass time. Well, they're just, they've just been around for millions of years. They are opportunistic feeders and they prey on a variety of species, crabs, fish, birds, turtles, pigs, buffalo, and yes. Humans. Even humans. Because they're opportunistic. I was going to, I was like joking, but it's. It's for real. They're not hunters. 
It's just that if you happen to be in the same place that they happen to be, yes, they're going to probably try to eat you. They communicate using several sounds, including barking, hissing, growling, and chirps, which I just want to back up. I know I say this probably every time we talk about crocodiles or alligators, but I love baby chirps. They're so cute. This is so reminding me of Lake Placid. Yeah. That I've actually watched. <laughs> Just so we could talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> right. And they do. They come out. They start out as the little yeah. cute and then they end up giant. And she thing. was feeding it cows. See? Betty White. Betty White. That was so great. <laughs> if there were like an animal yearbook, you know, animals of the world yearbook, uh, crocodiles would win the animal most likely to eat a human. It's uh, <laughs> amazing. It's, uh, I mean, based on, I guess. <laughs> Wombats the, would win like best ass. Right. <laughs> Saltwater crocs, or salties, as Australians call them, live in eastern India, southeast Asia, Micronesia, and northern Australia. Micronesia, you say? Are they some in Palau? There's some in Palau, Mm -hmm. and there was one on an island where there shouldn't have been one, and Mm -hmm. I was asked if I wanted to go help find it so they could bring it back. One of the guys in the, like, one of the directors was like, yeah, we're just going to use you as bait. (laughs) I was like, I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) It's not And nope. Yeah, I didn't go. They are excellent swimmers and have often been spotted far out at sea. Without warning, they explode from the water and with a thrash of their powerful tails, grasp their victim and drag it back in, holding it under until the animal drowns. And that is how they kill shit. Oh, man. Yeah. Just brutal and frightening. While the saltwater crocodiles are considered a low risk for extinction, like I think they're LC. It's like the lowest, least level of concern least, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something. On the IUCN. But saltwater croc hides are valued above all other crocodilians. And they are experiencing issues in terms of like illegal hunting and habitat loss, of course. Apathy towards the species or antipathy. I think that's just like anger, maybe because of its reputation as a man eater. Yeah. So people are like, whatever. Good riddance. So those things are putting pressure on the populations. Mm -hmm. But there's this crocodile specialist group. It's an international herpetologist collective. They estimate that there's an annual average of 300 attacks. Most of them are non-fatal by Nile crocodiles in Africa and 20 to 30 by saltwater crocodiles in Asia and Australia. Oh, that's not too bad. It's real low. I, you know, it's like they seem really scary and awful, but I think they're villainized like sharks. Yeah. But are they an apex predator? Uh, they are 100% an apex predator. Are they a keystone species? No, I didn't read about them being keystone species. Mm. Into the 1960s, these crocodiles were abundant on Ramry Island, but through excessive hide hunting by the 1980s, it seems like there's only few individuals oh, man. on the island. Everybody's got those crocodile skin boots and handbags. All right, Jen. So are you ready to talk about the incident that Josh shared with us about the Japanese soldiers? I'm so ready. I'm still freaking out about I didn't I guess I didn't realize that they had the strongest bite and that they were that huge. For some reason, I pictured saltwater crocodiles as the smaller version. I think because the ones I did see in Palau weren't that big. They're smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly, aren't the ones in Palau like a different color like they're darker they, they might like be like a different subspecies or something yeah but i remember that the place where i went to see them that one of them was missing a f- like a front foot and i was like hey what happened he's like oh yeah another one bit it off <laughs> and i was just like wow can we go now <laughs> all right so here we are at the incident of the japanese soldiers 
Let's talk about it. So this is World War II. Um, at the time, Japan had been occupying Burma since 1942. And this had come about through an agreement a number of years back when the Burma Communist Party was looking for independence from Britain. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, all right, we're going to go check out these communists. We're going to go talk to China. And we're going to get them to come and support us so that we can break free of Britain. Because Britain had colonized. There, were, I think there were like three Britain-Burmese wars. Mm-hmm. I think the first one was that Burma had taken something in India and then they were like, oh, we're, you know, we're the British, we're going to get it back. So they did. And they were like, well, we're going to conquer you too. And then they were just colonized forever. And so the Burmese people were like, let's go communist. Let's go talk to China. But Japan came in and they were like, yo, 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 it's all good. Wait, we're communists Wait a minute. We can help you. Like, we'll totally help you get independent. So the Japanese actually came through something called the invasion of Burma. And I'm like, how is that friendly? Like, I don't quite understand the dynamic that happened there. Maybe Look, I'm missing we're just going to invade you. We're just going to invade you. It's fine. We're just going to call it this so the rest of the world thinks but we're, we're friends. Badasses, but we're friends. It's cool. Yeah, we're helping you. Yeah, and Japan was like, listen, we're going to give you your independence. Like, don't even worry about it. But there was a lot of skepticism from the Burmese people. And actually during that time from like 1942 to 1945, the Japanese um, killed around 200,000 people, or at least those people died. I don't know exactly how they died. But it was not look, good. We're helping. So it didn't look super good for Burma. And then Burma was like, okay, you know what? We need to go talk to Britain again. <laughs> <laughs> They're they, like, yo, what up, Britain? Hey, listen, listen. And we're not like trying to make any kind of light out of Bur- the Burma situation. No. They rebounded with Japan. And then <laughs> let's try again with Britain because then it was World War II and Britain was like part of the allies. And Britain came in, specifically the British. 14th Army set up an offensive operation in the south of Burma to reclaim that area and they were helped by the there's like this Indian infantry division. I'm going to say helped, but they were also colonizing India. So did India have a choice? Probably not. Yeah. Let's be real. I mean, kind of interesting. Burma and India have a close relationship. I mean, India is like right there to the West. Mm -hmm. And they actually influenced like way back in the day, influenced the Burmese people to become Buddhists. And like 90% of the population there are Buddhists. And that's where they they got it from was India. It's like that. It's weird. Like it's weird talking about because their countries with millions of people Mm -hmm. but it's like talking about them as like one whole thing it makes it sound like some like you're talking about some friends like a person like a person just like india like india and burma were really close they went they went to hot yoga together (laughs) and then there was japan coming in all like Let's be BFFs. Maybe it's, I'm just thinking about today. I would be BFFs with Japan today. But Japan's awesome. I mean, but they're not trying then, to be imperialistic or, you know, take over the world. Yeah. So that's cool. Look, they just had some weird leaders back then, but they're cool now. Really is kind of crazy how leadership totally defines your country. You're just a person living in that country trying yeah. to like day to day it. And then you have some leader. And you're like, I didn't vote for the asshole. I swear right? to God. I voted for Hillary. Or... <laughs> <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> Wait, are you talking about something specific? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, but like... I feel- <laughs> we don't talk politics on this we podcast. Don't. I think about all of these leaders and the things that they're doing. Even Burma today. Oh, my God. 
I mean, just like in February, they had another kind of coup that's going on because they try to do another Democratic uh, voting. And it's like, you know, the army doesn't want to let go of control. And yeah, people I mean, don't want to vote for them. We had a coup in January. This is the truth. No longer a country who can say like... That kind of pretends to have its shit together. That. So, yeah, that's exactly what it, we can no longer <laughs> say we're pretending to have our shit together because we just haven't had it together forever. No. I had already said that the British were there with the Indian. There was an Indian infantry division, the 26th. Indian Infantry Division. I don't know how many there were or what that even means. But, but was there only 26? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> what if there were only 25? This one is just random. Just one more. It's just like one guy. It's <laughs> just like him and his cousins. <laughs> He's like, hey, we're here. It's cool. They don't have any uniforms. They're like, we're 26. Mm. Never mind. You know, when the British and the the Indian Infantry Divisions show up to help out Burma, they show up at Ramri Island because it's like kind of, it's really south. That's kind of where they're setting up. And you, you're you thinking like, oh, they're there to save the people. You know, it's like the Allied forces. Right. But it, I mean, no one's ever that altruistic. Come on. They were there, especially at Ramri Island, because it has a like nice flat area. Uh-huh. And it would be ideal for an airstrip. So oh. they're like, we're going to start here so right. we can set up our, our air strip so we can begin our campaigns of bombing the shit out of Burma so we can drive the Japanese out. Mm -hmm. January 1945, the Allied forces invade Ramri and then this other island uh, nearby, I think it's like to the southwest maybe a little bit, Cheduba Island, and they are going to establish those air bases for supply and bombing runs uh, to the mainland for their mainland campaign. Yes. Between January 21st and 23rd, a number of different brigades from both the British and Indian armies arrived to the beaches on the western side of Ramri Island in a couple different locations. And I read like three or four different articles about the strategy that they use, and I didn't understand a thing. I'm not good at chess. I'm not good at risk. I don't like those are really hard for me. We're very similar in that. I've never figured out how to play chess. And I just, if somebody tries to teach me, I'm like, I'm so bored right now. But basically what I gathered from all of this is that the infantry get off the floaty boats. I feel like such an idiot when it comes to this kind of stuff. The floaty boats. The floaty boats. (laughs) They had like artillery and they had vehicles on those boats and they drive them off onto the beach and the foot soldiers move forward. And while they're moving forward, the Royal Air Force and also the Navy, Royal Navy are out there in the water. The Air Force is flying over and bombing all the areas where they know the Japanese are. Mm -hmm. And then the battleships are also bombing like a little past where their men are going on so they can push the Japanese back as the foot soldiers come forward. Right. That's strategy. I get it. So as they're moving inland, there's actually one of the locations where the Allied forces were. There's like a bunch of landmines. So there were some lives lost there, but they just like kept pushing. They were like, F it, we got to get past here. But by the end of the 23rd, so it's like two days later, they had secured the beachheads. They were moving northeast and they had a plan to move up northeast and then eventually head south to a place called Ramri Town where the Japanese were kind of like holed up. Okay, that was like... Where more, they... like, like a lot more of them were right. like their kind of base location. Base, that's yeah. it, yeah. This is also a section where there's a lot of military jargon. What I could piece together is that somehow the British, and I think what happened is they used some British Marines who were on that nearby island. Um, they were able to like come around to another side and cover two possible exits the Japanese could use. And then basically they pushed them to one particular point, forcing them to retreat. So strategic. From Ramry Town. 
this wow. like area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I believe, Jen, this is what they call flanking. Oh. They, they outflanked the Japanese. Wow. They basically, like the Japanese were like, we're going to go to this one place. And then the British were like, what, what? We're here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all. I mean, that's what you see in movies. Yeah. When they look at a map and they're like, okay, we're going to come in this side. We're going to do this. I can watch like Game of Thrones, like that kind of stuff and like see what's happening. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. But when I'm reading about it, I'm like, nope, I need I need some visuals with this. Yeah, definitely. So the Japanese really fought super hard at Ramry Town, but in the end, they were not able to hold it. Uh, their leaders were like, all right, this is the deal. The only option we have is to head through this mangrove swamp to the other side of the island. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, and there's a number of different accounts, but it seems like there were anywhere from like 800 to 1200 Japanese soldiers who were going to start this trek. So they were trying to go across the island to join up with this larger battalion of Japanese folks and like you know, safety, supplies, Mm -hmm. whatever, reinforcements on the other side of the island. And to get there, they had to go through 16 kilometers or 9.9 miles of super dense, ridiculously muddy mangrove swamp. And you and I have both been in mangrove swamps. And F that. It is super muddy. It's so muddy. It's so slow going. Yeah, because it has all the roots. Mm Mm-hmm pointing up i mean and they're sharp yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. you don't want to you don't want to step on those you don't want to fall on those you don't want anything to do with them you're already in the mud probably knee deep wading through mud and brackish water and mosquitoes so many mosquitoes so yeah they were contending with a lot of things mosquitoes one of those things and and every like video that i watched about this story was like there were so many mosquitoes with so many diseases and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Why didn't they just get some DDT down in there? Right? <laughs> Japanese did not have DDT. Oh, boy. There's also scorpions, which it's weird when they were like, there's mosquito. Everyone said this, scorpions. And mm-hmm. I was like, really? In the mangroves? I thought that was strange. I mean, every account talks about scorpions. But every time I think about scorpions, I think about much drier areas. Yeah. Or like I've seen pseudoscorpions in banana trees mm-hmm. before. But Those like, tiny ones. Yeah. They're so cute. I don't know what kind of scorpions they're talking about. Yeah. I'm just thinking mosquitoes and crabs. Yeah. Crabs were an issue. Dehydration was a huge issue because mm. they're not in fresh water. Nope. Nope. They're in nope. brackish water. Um, starvation is an issue because they have zero supplies. Oh my gosh. And then the most infamous of all issues, Jen. 90 foot crocodile. Crocs. <laughs> And I'm not talking about those Crocs that you wore when you used to look at turtles, your red Crocs. Those bright red Crocs that I wore just to be annoying. There's this guy, his name is Bruce Wright, and he was a naturalist and he happened to be there at the battle, I think. In like some accounts it says he was there and then in other ones... He's a British soldier. He is a British soldier. Okay. Um, He's also a well-regarded biologist and nature writer and he taught at the University of New Brunswick and was known for his research um, into cougars and waterfowl. And he also research the environmental impact of pollution and pesticides what what wow That's and i cool. guess he knew rachel carson we're just tying it all together tying you guys. It all together we totally did that on purpose yeah and he was one of the first among that group to demonstrate the damage that was wrought by ddt on bird populations oh wait I'm not what is joking. his name his name is bruce wright i didn't actually read about him i just read about him in the articles i didn't look him up hold up he studied with aldo leopold no no way no Listen, oh my God, hang on. Just let me give you a real quick. Exploring the legacy of Leopold students, Bruce S. Wright, following Leopold's career path from forestry to wildlife management, all of the grad students who were admitted to Aldo Leopold's department in 1945 after serving in World War II had war stories, but few could rival those told by Bruce Wright. Yeah, that's him. He was born in Quebec. 
He was an avid outdoorsman and naturalist. He trained as a forester at the University of New Brunswick. After graduating in 1936, he worked as a forest biologist with the Dominion Forest Service. In 1940, he graduated from Naval Officers Training in Halifax and served with the Royal Canadian Naval Volunteer Reserve. Yeah, actually, I didn't spend a lot of time looking him up because I was like, oh, he just had a couple quotes in here. Like, And I thought it was interesting that he probably knew Rachel Carson. Thank you, Jen, for that. Because, yeah, I just didn't spend a lot of time. This is what procrastination gets you. So during World War II, Wright served with the Royal Navy Commando Unit in Burma, and he wrote a memoir of his time there called The Frogmen of Burma, and it was published in 1968. Um, He does mention that he wasn't actually there during the massacre that people talk about. Oh, God. But he had heard the story from a British comrade closer to the action who may or may not have made some shit up. Okay. So Wright gave a description in the wildlife sketches Near and Far. This is uh, from 1962 by Frank McLean. So McLean took this quote from Wright. Quote, that night, and they say February 19th, but I'm like, that's earlier. They didn't start the, the whole like operation until the 21st. So I'm confused about the date that they have down. Mm-hmm. But he said that night was the most horrible that any member of the motor launch crews ever experienced. The crocodiles, alerted by the din of warfare and smell of blood, gathered among the mangroves, lying with their eyes above the water, watchfully alert for their next meal. With the ebb of the tide, the crocodiles moved in on the dead, wounded, and uninjured men who had become mired in the mud. (gasps) The scattered rifle shots in the pitch-black swamp, punctured by the screams of the wounded men, crushed in the jaws of huge reptiles, and the blurred, worrying sound of spinning crocodiles made a a cacophony of hell that has rarely been duplicated on earth. At dawn, the vultures arrived to clean up what the crocodiles had left. Oh my God. Is there a movie about this? I didn't see anything about a movie about it. Of the thousand or so troops, we're just going to like average it. It's about a thousand troops who entered the swamp on Ramry Island. Uh, Reportedly only 480 survived and 20 of them were captured by the British. Oh my God. So basically more than half. More than half. Yeah. Eaten by crocodiles. In the Guinness Book of World Records, there's a listing that this is the largest crocodile attack in history. Well, I would hope so. And at first you're like, whoa, that's frigging horrific. Yeah. That's like so many. And yeah, if you watch this one particular YouTube where it's like all animated and it's like the crocodiles are just grabbing people left and right. Oh, it's it's animated? And the guy who's doing the narration is like, and the injured were the first to go, you know, just like so dramatic. But there was a lot of skepticism about the number of people who died because okay so the british as the japanese they were traveling through the swamp uh-huh. the british were kind of outside of the swamp but like following right right because they had already taken those areas and so they're following so some of the soldiers definitely died from british gunshots Right, right, right. Because they can see them in the mangrove and they're like, all right, that guy right there, boom, you know? And they're like, they're like, hello, we're not going in there. (laughs) (laughs) There's crocodiles in there. (laughs) Wait, that's Australian. Well, that's close enough. God damn it. But they were like, we're not even going to go... We're yeah. at, we'll stay on the outskirts. We'll be out here. We're going to shoot you guys from afar. And push you more into the crocodiles. Yeah. Probably some of them died from gunshot wounds. Some died from like previous injuries from the battles before they started walking. Some of them definitely died from dehydration. Starvation. Starvation. Like all the things. Yeah. There is a mention that maybe there were 10 to 15 men who were actually killed by crocodiles. Oh, well, and that's... Right. And maybe Way more realistic. Yeah. And maybe some of them were killed by sharks because there were also some sharks coming in. What? Yeah. So it's like, okay, 
those guys who probably were killed by were maybe injured or whatever first and then the crocodiles sharks whatever were like this guy's moving really slow he's bleeding a bunch I'm or yeah or they were dead already and they just mm-hmm. went and like threw them around them. a little yeah. or ate them after the fact or the vultures yeah. got them after the fact and they couldn't tell what was what yes. yeah so i think it's more realistic but I mean, it does make for, like I said, Guinness Book of World Records is like, oh, largest crocodile attack. And it's all based on accounts from like the 20 Japanese who were prisoners of war with uh-huh. the, the British. They were like, yeah, crocs everywhere. They're eating us. You know, it was crazy. It was like a, like a smorgasbord for like these crocodiles. Like that's how they told the story. Uh-huh. And the British weren't in there with them, but they could like hear the screaming. And I'm sure that there might have been some attacks. And okay, Jen, if you were, if a crocodile came after you or if I were just in the water and there Mm -hmm. was a crocodile Mm -hmm. there I mean as much as I love them I might scream oh I would scream a lot you know what I mean so it's like and I would like like, poo my pants (laughs) and I would run through the mud and then I would just get eaten well and let's just talk about how if you are gonna get eaten probably pooing your pants is a good idea (laughs) because they don't like they don't like that I mean well I mean I think animals in general are like if you marking your territory yeah like wombats (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just stack in your poo maybe you're going to be less desirable make a wall of poo yeah but yeah so i'll it, try it just try it <laughs> just, just pooping randomly has there been a study on this i i think that should be an episode honestly <laughs> i still feel like we haven't gotten enough or how many shit your pants stories have we gotten like none very few very few like two right i think we need some more all of the ways that you think someone would die in war, mm-hmm. that's probably more likely that's how they died in this situation. Um, McLean actually wrote in that Wildlife Sketches Near and Far yeah. from 1962, he actually wrote, most of all, there is a single zoological problem if, quote, thousands of crocodiles, end quote, were involved in the massacre, as in the urban jungle myth. How had these ravening monsters survived before? And how were they to survive later? The ecosystem of a mangrove swamp with all the mammal life simply would not have permitted the existence of so many saurians. So many saurians. They're crocodiles. That's the word I was trying to think of earlier. Existence of so many saurians before the coming of the Japanese. And then in parentheses, animals are not exempt from the laws of overpopulation and starvation. And I got to say that he makes a good point. Like people were talking about how there's these like thousands and thousands of crocodiles there, but no one ever did any studies on how many there were. Maybe they seemed so scary that it felt like they were everywhere. Yeah. In actuality, there probably weren't as many as people are saying because they would not have been able to survive. There wouldn't have been enough for them to eat to survive. Yeah. If there were that many. I was thinking the same thing. That's why when you were saying... How many people, like over, you know, 500 people died. Right? I'm like, are there that many crocodiles? Like, that's right. a lot. It's just like one crocodile. Dunk, dunk, dunk. <laughs> it's like, just chomping away. It's the 2,000 pound one. It's a serial killer croc. I think that it's a fantastical story. And it seems like, oh, all these people died from crocodile attacks. It's crazy. In actuality, you know, I think the reality is that it was just war. It was war, man. It was war. And it was a very harsh environment and circumstances for all the soldiers. I will say, though, that some other naturalists and historians do side with Wright's story saying the Ramry attack was, quote, one of the most deliberate and wholesome attacks on men by large animals that is on record. And, quote, had the story come from a source other than Bruce Wright, they would have been tempted to discount it. But Bruce Wright, a highly trained professional naturalist, was there at Ramry. So some people are like, Bruce Wright said it happened. Actually, that 
that was after the war. Mm-hmm. He was a grad student for Aldo Leopold. The book that his quote is in is in like the 60s. So maybe people are reading it and they're like, oh, well, if he's like this, you know, highly trained naturalist. But at the time, he wasn't. I mean, not saying he wasn't, but he was a naturalist, but maybe he didn't have as much experience. And he also got it as a secondhand story. Oh, he wasn't there. He wasn't actually there there. He was there, but he wasn't in the location where this like happened. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't with that group of soldiers who are listening to it. Nowadays, people would just like get the, you know, get their phones out. Yeah. And video that shit. And then you could be like, see, it's not a crocodile. (laughs) Okay, so this is my favorite quote of this whole story. This best quote goes to C.A.W. Gugisberg. Wait, cause the first name? C.A.W. I don't know. (laughs) I was like, that is a sweet name. I don't know what it stands for. What's your name? Ka. Gugisberg. Ka Gugisberg. (laughs) And he wrote uh, the book Crocodiles, Their Natural History, Folklore, and Conservation. And it was published in 1972. And he dubs Ramry, quote, the biggest man-eating orgy any crocodilians have ever been offered. That is amazing. Man-eating orgy. Right? That just gets like, I could see crocodiles like just flushing with like excitement over that. They're all like, oh. There weren't any like direct individual stories from any Japanese soldiers that were like, I was walking and I saw this and my friend was devoured. Like the 480 that survived. Right. There were no direct quotes from them or anything like that. But to be, I mean, I don't know. I'm not some like great historian on World War II. Mm -hmm. What I have read, and I've read a few things about... Japanese soldiers is Mm. they don't they didn't talk about anything. Yeah. And that was something that I read about in one of the articles. It was like Japanese soldiers at that time, obviously before they were kind of like put into a retreat were like really super hardcore. They were considered some of the most frightening soldiers, Mm -hmm. the level of loyalty and just like crazy shit that they would do. Mm -hmm. And that they didn't win. Right. Was a big shame. A big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that none of them talked about it because there were lots of atrocities Mm -hmm. that were never talked about. The culture or whatever, which just don't... You don't talk about shit. You just don't talk about it and you go back and move on with your life. Uh, One little last fact that actually I looked up before we started this story today, um, because whenever we're trying to come up with what you're going to say, like to introduce it, if you're telling a story and we're like, oh, I'm like, what do you want me to say? Uh, You know, like nature nerds or whatever. Yeah, we always fall back on nature nerds because that's our favorite. I mean, that's like... The best. If we have something fun, well... Yeah, that's like a little bit of an alliteration. Mm -hmm. Like today you did uh, Wisdom Weirdos. Yes. You were like, oh, what's a group of crocodiles called? And I feel like these are majestic creatures who have lived forever. Scientists couldn't come up with better names than this. Human eating orgies. Like, let's just rename it. Let's just rename it right now. Today. I don't even know what they're called. So if they're in... We should call it that. Yeah. If they're in the water, they're just called float floats. And if they're on land, they're called basques. And I'm like, really? That's just what they're doing. It's what they're doing, but it also sounds very, like, chill. There's nothing chill about. I mean, they're opportunistic feeders, so they don't do a lot, but Human eating orgy. Human eating orgy. It's much more accurate in my mind. (laughs) That sounds right, because it could apply for either land or water. Yeah, but let me just say, Mm -hmm. as much as I am scared of them, I don't want them to um, lose their habitat. No. And I don't want them to go away, and I just want them to live their lives happily. Just far, far away. Just so far away. Just in Burma is fine. I'm cool with that. 
be where you're supposed to be. I'll be somewhere else. But I support their right to live. And not be handbags. And not be sweet headbands. For people smallest. For people who want to rock out. Oh, man, I feel a swag coming on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm going to round out this story with a couple excerpts from this article that I read in the avocado.org. It's called Things That Are Not colon, The Horrors of Ramry Island. And it's by Christopher Saunders, and he wrote it in 2019. Oh. So it's just kind of putting some myths to bed. He's like, this didn't actually happen the way everyone says it did. Like an urban legend? An urban legend. But an urban legend could be like not true at all. But this... This is true. This is true to at least to a point. To an extent. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just been exaggerated a little Mm -hmm. bit. Christopher Saunders wrote, Crocodiles have long been imbued with both supernatural powers and unnatural murderousness. Individual attacks are terrifying enough. How to explain Whiteback, a saltwater croc who terrorized Sarawak in the 80s and 90s, or Gustave, the bullet-scarred Nile crocodile blamed for 300 deaths in Burudini. Do you remember that? No. I remember hearing about that. Is that that another episode? Oh my God, it should be. Let's just save it. Sensationalized accounts paint these creatures as serial killers, imbuing them with malice and calculation exceeding their primitive intelligence. He also said, this story may endure in part as poetic justice. The Imperial Japanese Army was notoriously brutal in the Second World War, committing atrocities against prisoners of war and occupied civilians alike. Thus, consigning a thousand Japanese to death by crocodile seems a karmic answer to the rape of Nanking, Bataan Death March, and the bridge on the River Kwai. It's strangely comforting to think that amidst history's most destructive war, even man-eating reptiles would choose our side. That's... One way to look at it, for Mm -hmm. sure. There were a lot of atrocities, but people are people and not all of them wanted to be there. It's true. And not all. Not all of them were bad. And there's atrocities on all sides. For certain. For certain. At least now, things are cool. Japan is a beautiful, amazing place Mm -hmm. with beautiful, amazing people. So luckily, everybody was able to move on from that. That's a crazy story. And now I see why Josh was like, you should check this story out. It's a little grim. It is a lot grim. Yeah. But wow. I'm even more scared of crocodiles. Thank you. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) I think I mentioned that a girl I went to grad school with got her leg. This gorgeous girl just Mm -hmm. studying river dolphins and just like seriously the nice person you'll ever meet got her leg bit off by a caiman. Cayman. I remember you saying that. I was just, I remember where, I, I remember where, exactly where I was when I heard that news. That's how much it was just like horrifying to That's me. That's crazy. But she's gone on to live an amazing life. So she's fine. I mean, you know, of course you can live a great life without a leg, but I'm mm-hmm. just saying it's just horrifying the way it happened. It's just one more reason. All right, Jen, I have an organization to support today and it is called Crocodiles of the World Foundation. Nice. It's all about crocodiles all the time. (laughs) All crocs, (laughs) all all day. (laughs) It's just talking about what color crocs you can get and if they have the slippy thing on the back of the heel. Just kidding. Let's just be honest. When you did try to look it up, it came up as like crocs. Okay, if you look up an account (laughs) uh, where the handle for Instagram is crocs of the world, all one word, it's about crocs, the shoes. But no, this is uh, crocodiles of the world. And actually, they do have a crocodile zoo, and it is in the UK, and it is the UK's only crocodile zoo. But then they also have a foundation, and the foundation is a registered charity. Their commitment is to advancing crocodilian conservation and promoting awareness of environmental issues affecting crocodiles. And I I do like how they are dedicated to getting rid of some of the myths and beliefs about crocodiles. They do a lot of education about how crocodiles aren't like evil. That's right. Human death orgy. What was it called? (laughs) (laughs) What was it called? (laughs) 
I forget now. <laughs> gotta go back to my document. Hold on. Man eating orgy. Oh, man eating orgy. Yeah. Human death orgy. It's all the same. So anyway, you can check them out at crocodilesoftheworld.co.uk. Okay. Okay. So if you make Instagram. a donation, can, do they send you a little stuffed animal a, or like a live baby crocodile? A tiny baby crocodile. That would be just a saltwater croc. You're just, like, you just put it in your tub and, you know, however many years later, it's like 2,000 pounds. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. You don't have any other animals anymore. You just take them on walks and stuff. How many koalas is that, do you think? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, well, let's see. 80 pounds is three koalas. So do right? the math. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. All right. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> we did some math. <laughs> some koala um, math. One croc weighing, like male croc weighing 2,000 pounds mm-hmm. is equivalent to 53,333 <laughs> Point three four. Oh, you're gonna have three koalas. quarters of a koala. <laughs> three quarters of a koala. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of koalas. Let me just wrap my head around that for a second. So koalas only weigh like twenty five pounds. Yeah, like twenty five pounds. Okay, like a large cat. Like my one large cat. You know what you have to do? I have to feed him separately. You have to stop free feeding your cats, oh, and then your life would just be awful, terrible, be awful, Jen. <laughs> yes, I would. I would definitely be dead. Yeah, and that would be another story for another episode. Episode. It would be, but you would have to tell it alone because I would be dead. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, hey, Hi nature guys. nerds, I got a real downer for you. <laughs> Megan's not here today because her at cats finally ate her. <laughs> she was trying to regulate their feeding times, <laughs> put them on a schedule. Cautionary tale. <laughs> All right, Jen. Oh, God. Here not- we are. Oh, Jesus. Why didn't you remind me? The best part of the story. Oh, uh, what would I pack in my emergency preparedness yes. kit? Yes. If you were forced somehow, I'm not saying in the military, whatever, you're just forced to go through a saltwater crocodile infested mangrove swamp. Like I have no choice. You have no choice. What would you bring? I would basically go through some sort of like circus training to learn how to walk on stilts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just for this situation i probably would have already shot myself but if not i would have made myself poo just to be less tasty to <laughs> the on demand some poo on demand i mean pooing your pants is not something you can pack in your emergency preparedness kit but but you can pack it <laughs> i like how saber like kind of whined he's like please god no you just pack it in your lifetime carry-on <laughs> talking about your colon oh is that what that is i (laughs) laughed i didn't know what you're saying your lifetime carry-on megan (laughs) i mean that's a stretch it's like your colon (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) this is good this is getting worse well anyway let's just let's just stop while we're ahead let's yeah, yeah. leave it there we'll say stilts and poo your pants on demand card all right that sounds good done deal because mm-hmm. i mean i just i, I kind of want to know if that's scientifically proven <laughs> call well, up nat geo we're gonna <laughs> just be like listen like all of their we have an amazing study right that we would like you to try could you fund this number one <laughs> and number two can we have some of your photographers as our subjects or dummies just preloaded (laughs) preloaded and see which ones they like like you have the poopy ones and the non-poopy ones right renowned biologists (laughs) dear nat geo i did once help manage a nat geo grant and it was really cool i mean it wasn't cool it was so you know people well i mean i don't know i mean so you can write them (laughs) you're like hey guys it's me megan (laughs) 
the the invoices and stuff that, that looked really cool because it had like the Nat Geo. Sign I, I I approved some of your invoices back in uh, 2011. <laughs> you might remember me as. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> I have a really great idea. <laughs> okay, I wrote it up. Now just hear me out. <laughs> That's like the time that I tried to convince someone when I was a Peace Corps because I had read one article about it to mulch baby diapers. <laughs> and everybody Moisture. just like and pretended like, like you never said anything and just carried on about their day. Yeah. And then I was like, I'm going to go make some coffee. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to my story. That was an amazing story. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Josh, for recommending it. Mm-hmm. I feel like... That's something that I think a lot of people I didn't know about. Right. A lot of people didn't know. So we have three patrons to shout out. I am so excited about that. Uh, so thank you so much, Skylar. Welcome to the Nature Nerd family. And Samantha, thank yeah. you so much for becoming a Nature Nerd patron. And Erica, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. We love all of you guys. You Feel guys free. Awesome. You guys, you know, if you have any story ideas for our bonus episodes, yes. let us know our regular episodes. Totally. If you want to become a patron and hear those bonus episodes, just go to our website, and go to the Patreon up. and just it's so easy. It's Choose too easy. It's too And you get free stuff. I actually have already selected what I'm going to talk about for July cuz it's my Patreon. Yeah, episode. I can't wait. It's going to be crocodile. I got to give her a deadline. <laughs> yeah. Could you tell me what day and time you need it by? Yes. And then I'll get it done five minutes before. Perfect. Yeah. I did actually take a nap earlier today and I was like, I really can't take this nap. Right. <laughs> but you took it anyway. But I did. It's all good. Close. It was like a power nap. It's like 20 minutes. You need that. Everybody good. needs a power nap. Then I woke up and I was like, let's get her done. Bam, bam, bam. And then I watched a few YouTube videos. <laughs> And that's how procrastination Uh, works. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, patrons. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. yawning now bitch because <laughs> you're talking about oil reserves <laughs> local economy so lame uh, <clears throat> you sorry, just bring I'm... up the word economy and i get and you sleepy just, like, you're like i gotta take a nap real quick <laughs>